Welcome to the Women in Treasury Study Results Podcast. I'm Sophie Jackson, Joint Publisher and Head of Strategic Content at the Treasury Today Group. I'm delighted to be joined on this special standalone episode by Meg Coates, Joint Publisher and Head of Operations at Treasury Today, Francis Hinden, Vice President, Treasury Operations at Shell, and Yang Butler, Senior Managing Director, Global Head of Cash Business at State Street Global Advisors, who kindly supported last year's Women in Treasury Annual Global Study. This podcast is designed to present a high-level discussion of the Women in Treasury 2018 Annual Global Study results. In 2018, 348 women from across the world completed Treasury Today's Women in Treasury study, and we would like to thank each of them for doing so. It is their experiences and their insights that have allowed us to map the Treasury profession's path to diversity. On December 10th, 2018, Treasury Today were lucky enough to be present at the installation of Fearless Girl at her new permanent home outside the New York Stock Exchange. Fearless Girl is a statue created by State Street Global Advisors to symbolise female power and to represent the call for better gender diversity on boards. Treasury Today had the pleasure of then catching up with Yang Butler after the unveiling to hear about State Street Global Advisors' work on diversity and inclusion, to learn more about Fearless Girl and to discuss the partnership with Treasury Today on our 2018 Women in Treasury study. I think when you have cognitive diversity, you arrive at the best business outcomes. When you've got people from various backgrounds, from various educational attainments, from various ethnicities, various genders, then you actually have a fuller conversation to discuss all the pros, the cons, in order to arrive at the best decisions. Fantastic. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work that State Street Global Advisors have done in this space, what you're trying to achieve, um, particularly, I guess, with the recent news around Fearless Girl. Oh, where to start with Fearless Girl is super exciting. Um, As many of your listeners may know, she was placed on the eve of International Women's Day back in 2017. So she turns two pretty soon um, and now is at her permanent place in front of the New York Stock Exchange here in New York. Um, As a result of her and everything that she stands for, um, State Street Global Advisors has actually been able to engage with so many companies um, that we invest in and that 300 or more, actually as of today, 301 companies within the Russell 3000 have agreed to add a female on their board. So to me, that is as great as business outcomes can get um, in terms of our asset stewardship. And the fact that State Street Global Advisors was willing to have that engagement and that difficult conversation with the companies that we work with was step one. And now we're actually seeing results. Absolutely. I think the fact that she symbolizes real change and real progress in action is just phenomenal. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is why you've chosen to work with Treasury Today on the Women in Treasury Initiative, what the partnership means for you. For us, it's about being data-driven in our understanding of the extent of the challenges that women face in the workplace, um, identifying where it's most prevalent, um, identifying whether is it in middle management, is it in the promotions, is it... Um, in the entry-level space that we're actually having pipeline issues? Or is it in senior leadership promotions? 
So in partnering with Treasury today, we were able to actually hear directly from treasurers and um, women within financial institutions in hearing their specific thoughts and their candid experiences in better understanding the problem we're looking to address so that we can actually be very targeted about the solutions that we can employ. Fabulous, and obviously this year, 2018, we've got a fresh data set, over 50% new respondents, many new questions asked um, this year with our partnership on the study. What have your main takeaways, if you could summarize them, been from this year's findings? So the issue of quotas was one that was quite startling in terms of the actual results that more women are actually in support of using quotas um, in, in organizations. For me, the challenge has been, how do you actually translate having quotas into action? And so my key takeaway there is that if there is more and more support for quotas, then there's got to be much more innovative solutions in terms of what we need to employ to actually drive progress for gender diversity in the workplace. Fantastic. And um, we're in December now, celebrating Fearless Girl's arrival in her permanent home. As we all look towards the holidays and towards next year, 2019, what do you hope happens next in this conversation we're having as we look to next year? It's quite specific. I would love to be able to invite more men as part of this conversation, because I think the last couple of years has been around discussing the issues with women, with other women, and understanding the scope of the issue. Next year is all about translating those insights into action. And part of that is inviting men into the conversation and also being solution driven in terms of what we need to do next together as a partnership in order to move those numbers forward. Thank you to Yang Butler for her thoughts there. And what a fantastic moment in history the unveiling of Fearless Girl at her new permanent home represents. Next up, Megan and I sat down with Frances Hinden to hear her perspectives on our 2018 study results and what they mean for her and for the broader community. So, hi Frances, Meg, and welcome. So great to have you both here with me. Hi Sophie, great to be here. Hi Sophie, it's also great to be here. Perfect. So the first area that I wanted us to look at is, I guess, the start of this, which is the whole topic of diversity and inclusion and representation, why it matters. So at the beginning of this year's study, we asked our respondents what the terms diversity and inclusion meant for them, because I think they're expressions that are used very often, but it's not always clear to everybody what they mean. So if we think about us here today, what, what do they mean for us together now and why do we think they matter? I think looking at the responses in the survey, there's a lot of definitions of diversity and somewhat less of inclusion. People tend to use the phrase diversity and inclusion together, but they're actually very different things. You need diversity and you need inclusion. So for me, diversity is almost easier to define. Diversity is a range of outlooks, attitudes, backgrounds, cultures, opinions, it's not about what you look like, whether you're male or female or black or white. It is about a diversity of your brain. And I think, why does it matter? It matters because we make better decisions, we have better teams and we run better companies when we are a diverse team. Mm. But diversity is only the start. Having diversity is no good if you don't also have inclusion. Mm. If you recruit a diverse team, but then everyone has to mold themselves to the company culture, you haven't gained anything. And I've seen really sad 
depressing more than sad cases where people have been recruited because they are different mm. to say we need somebody else it would be great to have someone with this different background then they come in and then they are just forced to join the culture and a strong company culture can be a good thing because it helps build collaboration it helps build teamwork it helps build that feeling of belonging but if you don't include everybody for who they are you lose the benefits of diversity absolutely i think you're totally right i think we see many cases where as you say people are brought into an organization precisely because they are different and then they're not allowed to maintain that difference as they work in that organization it kind of gets battered out of them for want of a better expression um, which seems a bit of a wasted opportunity. And perhaps it means we need to think about a lot more than just hiring when we're talking about this space. It's often, oh, we're going to hire a couple of people who are different and then we've fixed our problem of having a ubiquitous-looking top-level management. But that's not really the whole story. Yeah, and I think someone said something that resonated with me recently at one of our roundtables. They said, you know, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is dancing like no one's watching. And I thought that was really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I think that's very well put. In my company, we've done some work on inclusion, which comes into the, the, a lot of work on unconscious bias. And it makes you examine how you treat people. Mm. So very simple examples such as you say, well, we want to give more people opportunities to do cross-training, to do new projects, so let's ask for volunteers. But if you ask for volunteers, the people you get are the people who've been brought up in a culture where putting your hand up and saying, I want to do something, is considered a good thing to do, rather than the people who've been brought up not to do that, of whom, certainly in Asia, there are quite a few people for whom that'd be very rude. So we have to move from saying, we'll ask for volunteers, to we will select and then you come into the whole unconscious bias piece where you say, well, if we select, now we're applying our views of who the right person is rather than actually giving lots of people's opportunity. This is really hard, actually, to get this right and not turn it either into, I mean, we, we talked about the whole inclusive one culture, but you can go the other way. If you go too far the other way and you just say everybody's right, then you lose cohesion and sometimes you will not stop behaviours which are actually wrong. Mm. I'm going to be extreme. Having somebody who is an extreme misogynist and racist in your company, that's diverse. But inclusion does not mean giving them a platform to yeah. continue yeah. on in that way. So yeah. we do have a collective, if you like, a collective voice or a collective endeavour that we should all be working towards. It doesn't mean you've just got everyone speaking out loud their own thoughts. You've got to have a collective vision that come together for. Mm, absolutely, empowering people to bring their thoughts to the table. I agree with you. I think it, you, you made me think a bit of Twitter when you said that. On Twitter, you know, you've got a wide variety of voices, but it often feels like everyone's shouting yeah. and nobody's forming agreements or making decisions to go forward. And obviously in companies, we need to come together to make collective decisions and move forwards for the best of a business. We are here at the end of the day to, to do a job. Yeah. Okay, so finally, before we move on from the broader topic of diversity and inclusion, I wanted us to briefly think about why particularly women's representation remains important. We are looking at the results of our Women in Treasury annual global study, and we're certainly seeing that there's never been as much need for our women in Treasury communities across the world. So briefly, perhaps both of you can explain why you think it's still important to be thinking about female representation. Absolutely. So I think bringing a platform for women to join together is 
still super important if we look across the landscape over the last couple of years we were all in a position where we thought things were going to get better for women's representation and no doubt things have got worse for women's representation so if we look at the fortune 500 female ceos has fallen from 6.4 percent to five percent so things are you know getting worse and if we look at our stats only 4.6 percent of companies have a female ceo so i think it's still really important to bring together communities of women to share uh, their experiences and challenges and how they've overcome those i think you're you're focusing a bit on the top level of the company Mm -hmm. which i know we're going to come to there's a very simple statistic which is women are roughly 50% of the population (laughs) (laughs) and for a lot of companies and certainly a lot of corporates women make up 50% of the intake so I think one of the reasons it's become so important particularly for women is partly because we are a natural community and there's a lot of us and partly because there is a very definite issue here with people starting with better A-level results better O-level results I think now better degrees I haven't got a stat to quote in front of me but girls generally do better than boys academically they join corporates and we're talking about treasury at a 50 50 level Mm. and yet somehow it goes away i'm not sure that statistic and that experience of of people not doing well is reflected across other and i hate to use the word minority because women are not a minority yeah Mm. You've led us on nicely to this idea of of what's happening to that talent as it's moving through an organisation, this idea of a talent pipeline and that top level. So as Meg mentioned there, just under 5% of our respondents for the 2018 study have a female CEO and only 18% are working for a company with a diverse board leading them. So why do we think this isn't improving and how can talent pipelines begin to be more effective in getting talent up to that top level what are the problems that, that women are facing? And not just women, I guess like we would talk about minority talent as well, in moving through organisations more effectively. I would say the, the problem is anybody who isn't typical of what the current top management are. So some women who are doing well are perhaps closer in behaviours to the men who do well. Most big companies have some form of talent identification programme where they look at people who they think are high potential, high talent, and single them out, put them on the fast track. But their means of identifying those people tend to be to look at a list of characteristics where they say, these are the characteristics of somebody who's going to do very well. But that list of characteristics are generated by looking at the people who've done well in the past. Mm. So you look around at your current board or your current senior management and say, what characteristics do they have? Therefore, that is what we need from our senior management in the future. Now, some of those you do need. You need to be motivated. You need to be ambitious. You need to work hard. You need to be clever. I mean, you need to know what you're doing. But some of it is about behaviours and about how you act that more diverse people, which is such a dreadful phrase, (laughs) many women or people from a different cultural background will not have those behaviours, but might be equally successful with a different set of behaviours. So this way that that one identifies and promotes and fast tracks people who reflect the current top management is going to lead to this feedback cycle where you never make a change. So you, you really have to take almost a leap of faith and take a risk that says we do see and we believe that a more diverse board or senior executive will lead to more success. Now we're going to have to put our fingers in the air and say, how do we identify the best people for that? 
So perhaps this is even a look at unconscious bias training as well, to look at what those behaviours are that we list on our list of successful people. Yeah, it's some of that is not unconscious bias. Some of that is consciously saying, behaving like this, typical example, working 24 hours a day, travelling whenever it's needed, always being in the office. All the people who are senior today have exhibited those behaviours. It's not unconscious bias to say, it's wrong, Mm. but it's not unconscious to say, and therefore, those behaviours are necessary. Mm. It is the need to challenge that it is necessary to work like this in order to be a senior leader. I think perhaps there's two points there. I think some of those traits that you're saying, or characteristics was the word you used to be precise, are in fact more personal traits really they're quite hard to define and they're quite hard to measure if we're talking about someone being motivated and so on we need perhaps begin to define a list of characteristics that can be more easily verified so that we're avoiding unconscious bias perhaps is that a solution and if not then what solution could we have to changing this list of characteristics to broaden it out to be more inclusive i think you're also right that there's unconscious bias I've heard people say things such as we're looking at a shortlist and deciding who to recruit. I'm going to take this person because they'll have a much faster learning curve because they'll fit in faster, which is, Mm. it is unconsciously saying these people are more similar to me and my life will be easier. And let's be fair, your life will be easier. So I think part of this is about, is there a list of things that we should look for but a list of things that we should say, we don't need these. Mm. So if somebody says, I have to leave at five o'clock every day, whether it's to look Mm. after my ancient aging father or to pick up my children, Mm. but I promise I will do whatever is necessary to do, whether it's at home or at work, do we discount that and say, no, they're not really properly dedicated to the job if if they think their family is more important? I mean, we could certainly have a long conversation about people who want to work part-time. I know a number of people who've successfully done part-time jobs, but they all say that whilst people are very helpful and supportive to their flexible working, there's then a background assumption that they're not ambitious. Yeah, and I think when corporations are looking at having more diverse talent, one of the things that we're all talking about now is the future of work, right? And in the future of work, the companies that are going to thrive will be ones with diverse talent because diverse talent challenges decisions that are being made. This concept that the global financial crisis might not have happened if we'd had more diverse teams leading those organisations because you would have had people who were challenging decisions that were being made. And to go back to your point, Francis, you don't just always want to hire the easiest person because they're not going to challenge you. Yeah, I mean, even having a more diverse team, having the courage to challenge is harder we're back at diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. you can have a diverse team which says you've got a group of people around the table including your non-executive director who ticks your diverse box but being that one person around the table is very very hard challenging is perhaps a an emotional word that's difficult to to identify what we exactly mean when we say challenge I think just by the nature of having had a different professional experience or a cultural background you're going to challenge the status quo that doesn't mean you have to be saying I am challenging this decision that's being made but just purely the ideas that you bring to a table for new products for new ways of speaking with clients and so on will be a challenge to what has been going on before in the corporate land we're seeing that um, in a lot of organizations um okay so 
There's been some amazing points raised there and I wanted us to think about how we might begin to move talent through. One of the areas of which being, of course, quotas, which was one of the statistics from this year's study, which was most startling to us, I guess. For the first time since we've been running the Women in Treasury annual global study, um, we've got a 12% differential between support for quotas and opposition to their use. So this year, 44% of our respondents were in favour of quotas and 32% were against. So Francis, you and I have spoken about this before, and I think this is an area where it's good to hear different viewpoints. What are your thoughts? And if, if not quotas, then what? I find this question really hard. I suspect that the percentage of people in favour is going up over time as nothing changes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And Meg, you gave us the, the statistic earlier that it's not changing at the top. So the more nothing changes, the more you start to think maybe the change has to be forced somehow because it's simply not evolving. But I, I still I still struggle with quotas because I see myself in future maybe sitting on a board because they had a quota for female board representation. And I don't think anybody wants to feel that they're sitting around the table and people are looking at them and thinking, you're only there because of the quota. That's what frightens me. The other is a conversation I had with a middle-aged white man who works for me recently, who said, I'm never gonna get promoted because all promotions yeah. are going to women at the moment. Yeah. And I couldn't argue with him. It's absolutely right. He's not going to get promoted because all promotions are going to women at the moment. So I, I, I believe in having, it's a dreadful word, but I believe in having aspirations. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, I was talking about this someone else, and they said to me, well, men have had it their way for the last thousand that's, years. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> about time. So I, I, I do believe in a stated aspiration to change. I still can't get my head around the idea that a quota is the answer because you'll end up with a board which splits itself into two. And I think you raise an interesting point there that this rebalancing of power, if you like, and if we're looking at global rebalancing of power, there's going to be a step in which white men are going to be at the back of the queue for a little while as we rebalance power because they've held the lion's share of it for a very long time. And we've tried to bring about equality by helping everybody and by taking everybody with us. And so this idea of quotas, meaning that if there's only one seat coming up, that means that all the men might as well go home because there's, they're never gonna get it. It's very disheartening. And it's uh, it doesn't want to be that the way in which we get more women to the top is that we fr freeze the development of men that are coming into organizations who also have something to offer. Because in a truly equal society, we wouldn't be seeing gender, right? We would just be seeing talent. So I think it feels disheartening. And we really understand that, but, this idea of an aspiration, and you know, people also talk about the term targets as well, doesn't seem to be working. Somebody stood up, or was, I can't remember if it's a chemist or a physicist, but he stood up and said, effectively, women can't be scientists. And that did generate a lot of people speaking out and explaining the discrimination mm. they'd received, yeah. the challenges they'd had trying to develop as academic scientists. But to some extent, actually having people stand up and say things which are, I'm going to say, obviously unacceptable, mm. helps generate that disclosure from other people. Say, no, that attitude still exists everywhere. Because you mentioned unconscious bias earlier, that there is still, I think a lot of people believe that the reason these numbers aren't changing is there aren't any decent women around. Yeah, and also that women don't really want to be on boards because it's really hard work. 
Yes, I think in my experience, the people who work hardest are not the board members. <laughs> it, there's, there's, there's various phrases for it. There's things, the phrase is squeezed middle. There's a much more obscene phrase I've heard used as well. <laughs> and I think um, something important to, for us to think about as well is a quota doesn't always mean a number, like you have to have one woman on a board. I think we need to focus on the percentage um, yeah. that you need so it's relevant to the size of that company's board. You need X percent of, of women on your board yeah exactly which is why something like the 30 percent club has been doing so well in the uk right i think they're doing well in terms of publicity just a side note for those who aren't aware the 30 percent club are a group who advocate for 30 percent female representation at board level in the uk so i believe that they have been instrumental in pushing for change in the uk do you do you disagree maybe i'm just cynical i certainly agree they've been doing a lot of pushing for change I think, as we were just saying, it's not clear it's achieving much yet. I think in the UK, actually, things are looking more bright. In the US, things are not looking bright at all. And um, we've had a number of senior female CEOs of US organisations retire, right, which has pushed that figure down, um, you know, Indra Noy and the like. Um, but in the UK, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I believe things have improved, actually, and they've done a lot of work of getting the government on board. Um Another area in which women still sadly don't seem to be getting the rewards professionally that they should be is in terms of salary. Um, we all know the statistics at a broader level, but out of our respondents, we had just under 40%, so that's 39% of 2018 respondents, feeling that they were not paid the same as their male counterparts. Now, that's a difficult one because without every company having full transparency on remuneration, we don't know if these perceptions of our respondents are true or not. So what do we think in the room there? Is, is that surprising to see that statistic of 39%? I'm not surprised by it. I suspect that if you surveyed all the men and said, are you paid as much as your colleagues at the same level, a fair percentage would also say no. A lot of people permanently have the perception that they're not paid as well as their colleagues. I, I don't know what the distribution of size of company is against people who've said that. So I think there is definitely a difference between the big multinationals and smaller companies, particularly smaller companies like hedge funds or trading houses, where there's a very big bonus element to your pay. Mm. So for big corporates of any form, I believe that... If you are at the same level in the same salary band, you are paid against the same salary band. What might be the case is the, the two things which can drive the difference. So first of all, bonuses. So to what extent men are getting bigger bonuses than women. Mm. And if you look at the UK gender pay gap reports that come out, people publish a bonus pay gap as well as an overall pay gap. There tends to be a bigger bonus pay gap for men versus women, but that still doesn't actually tell you because it's not by seniority. So where you have more senior men, higher levels of seniority tend to get bigger bonuses, so therefore men will get bigger bonuses, which doesn't actually tell you if it's equitable or not. And the other piece, of course, is it's back to the previous thing we we're talking about, it's about promotions. So are men getting promoted preferentially to women? And if so, they're going to get paid more, but they could still get paid exactly the same if they're at the same level. I agree with you. I also, one of the things that I was talking to someone about recently was this idea that an unjust salary can follow you throughout mm. your whole career because when we go to our next jobs, we often disclose what salary we're currently on. So say we started off at age 25 
being unfairly paid less than our male counterparts. That could then be something that, that follows us for the rest of our careers. Now, there's been a number of different solutions put forward to that. The idea that we don't have to disclose our salary when we go for an interview and that that is becoming more commonplace that you, you might avoid doing so. I've certainly been told by recruitment consultants, never say what you're currently paid. I think Helen Hamby on a recent webinar um, shared some really great tips uh, for our women in treasury community around pay parity and saying you know if you feel you are paid less than your male counterparts as we discussed earlier on some of this must be perception and we need more visibility and transparency there but if you do believe you're being paid less than your male counterparts and you have that information then gather that and go and talk to your manager with that proof and don't be scared or shy to go ahead and and do that i was going to say there's a, a friend of mine i won't say where she works but she got promoted quite recently and was told this is your pay rise on promotion. And she then spoke to some of her new colleagues and realised that she was probably not got the same pay rise they did. And she had the courage to go back to HR and said, I don't believe you're paying me the same as people at the same level. Either you fix it or I'm going to go to the data protection regulator and say, I am requesting this information and you are required to give it to me. Not how much individuals are paid, but how my pay compares to everyone else at my level. Because virtually everyone else at her level was male. And she said, I got 25% pay rise next week. Well, I've also heard other stories of people suddenly being given, in, in the yes. midst of this scandal of pay gaps, people suddenly being given unexplained pay rises, senior women. Yeah, that'd be nice. Of, that, yeah, very nice, <laughs> but they've been a bit perplexing for them why they've suddenly had an enormous hike. Um, and I think we all know why they've suddenly had an enormous hike, because the companies are preparing to release their salary bandings for different genders. You've moved us to a nice area there, which is this idea of negotiating. We don't want to just look at these statistics and say, this is the way it is. What can we do to change this? So one of the areas that's often raised is perhaps men are brought up to be better negotiators, and that's why they end up walking away with better salary packets or better bonus packets. So what are our thoughts around improving negotiating skills? You mentioned some ideas there. So I talked about the advice that Helen Hamby offered in our recent webinar there. And one point you raised, Sophie, actually, that was really interesting is when we look at kind of the lower levels. So if you are a manager or maybe a, a junior within the company, having that courage to step forward and say, look, I don't think I'm paid fairly or paid equally to my counterparts can be a challenging one. So you were talking of this idea of forming groups together, you know, mm. support groups where you can share and discuss how you might go about navigating um, a, a difficult conversation like this because it you know it is an uncomfortable conversation to have for some people and I think the other thing that we can think about doing as well is reaching out to perhaps a mentor or even a coach for this particular negotiation skill. Yeah I think coaches particularly can be very instrumental I know employer resource groups can be fantastic but lots of companies won't like this idea that you're all clubbing together to get what you want yeah, I, th I think one of the best ways to get a large pay rise is to move roles and particularly move companies. I think women move less than men quite often across companies. So then we say, well, does that mean you have to move more or does it mean, as you say, you need better negotiating skills in your current company? And it is, you say, it is really hard to go and say, I think I'm being underpaid. And speaking as a manager, I've had people come to me and say, I think they're, they're underpaid. And my reaction generally as well if you're certain you're underpaid I suggest you find another job and prove it said possibly <laughs> slightly more politely than that but you've got to be ready to do that but then. you you have to be ready to demonstrate 
and we this is two slightly different things here there's one is if you genuinely think you're not being paid as much as people at the same level as you and that's illegal as opposed to the slightly more general point which i think we moved on to which is what do you do if you think you're not being paid a suitable amount for what you contribute as in you think you deserve a pay rise if you think you deserve a pay rise then as we said men have a tendency to ask for them more but it is we're women we often work slightly differently it is then evidence-based mm. why do i deserve a pay rise i mean you just laugh saying yes if you can demonstrate that at another company someone is prepared to pay you 20 percent more you can very easily go and say i can get 20 percent more by moving actually i like working here mm. but that's a lot of money what are you going to do about it yeah yeah and also i think often it's sad to me to hear how many people have waited so long to talk to their organizations that they're already out the door in their mind they're yeah. already moving on because they haven't had those conversations which is a real shame because i think often if organizations were earlier on engaged in the fact that their talent was unhappy they were at least given the opportunity to do something about it no i agree you you if you're unhappy you need to say so and i think that's another thing that people are often not very good at Absolutely. I think communication is key. And I think um, you owe it to yourself as well as your um, organisation to start those communications early on. Fabulous. So looking towards 2019, where do we go from here? We've been having a lot of these conversations for a while now, and it's been interesting over the course of 2018 to see this conversation evolve with our communities across the world. But what can we apply from what we've learned this year as we broaden out the dialogue to next year? Well, one thing that struck me when I read the results of the Women in Treasury survey was how senior a lot of the people replying were. So we've just spent the last time on this podcast talking about what an organisation can do, what they can do. But actually, there are a lot of senior women in Treasury today. I think we should think about what we can do. So it's not thinking about, okay, I'm not on the board of my company, so I'm not going to think about what the board of my company should do. I should be thinking about, I'm responsible for a large treasury team. What can I do to improve equality, diversity and inclusion within my team as I go into the next year? I love that. And I think it's something that we've been saying as well at our forums is, first of all, yes, there are still inequities that everybody's facing. But as you just rightly pointed out there, we're looking at a, a range of women who've got incredibly senior roles, who are in positions of power, and who do have voices that can help to shape the community that we all belong to. So let's make sure that everybody is, is getting engaged and using their voices to, to make things better. Absolutely. And I think, you know, community is even more important than ever. And I think we should continue to have these conversations. And I certainly feel over the last year that our Women in Treasury community has really opened up and has really become open to sharing a lot more openly their thoughts and views on these things. And I think by being honest and open with each other, we can, you know, push things forward and by bringing men into the conversation as well. Bringing everyone into the conversation. Yeah. Bringing yeah. everyone into the conversation. Thank you, exactly. Francis. <laughs> yeah, we want a diverse group across the world that wants things to be better. And one of the things that we'll be looking at next year is how we can begin to connect people together who might not be able to physically meet one another. We've got an array of very senior professionals who believe in a diverse and inclusive corporate future. And we want to make sure we're connecting them all. 
Yeah, I think if we go back right to the beginning of our conversation and we think about diversity of thought, I think there's a lot of benefit for connecting people all over the world to come together and share their thoughts because you're going to get a very different um, opinion and thought from someone that works on the other side of the world to you. And I think that could be a real benefit for all of us. So you made this wonderful point at the beginning, France, and it's one you made on our panel as well in 2017, that diversity of thought and diversity of background are much more critical here than looking at different people in a room and to go to Meg's point as well if we're thinking about bringing people of different cultures who are approaching similar problems I think that this will be a real game changer in moving this dialogue forward because it's not working one culture alone and if you look for example in Asia we are seeing many more senior women rising to the top so why is that happening and what can we learn just equally what do we have to share with people in different parts of the world that can help them to advance their their causes as well. Fantastic. So I would like to say a big thank you um, from Meg and I to you, Francis, for joining us today. Thank you, Francis. Um, It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you very much to our guests, Yang Butler and Francis Hinden, for sharing their thoughts with us. Thank you also to our Women in Treasury global community for your support over the last six years. Stay tuned for further coverage of this space throughout 2019. And if you would like to get more involved with the Women in Treasury initiative, you can do so by joining our dedicated LinkedIn Women in Treasury community today.